will you please open your Bibles to the book of Romans in the New Testament? That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, and then Romans. The book of Romans in the New Testament is an extraordinary deposit in the library of Scripture. It is distinctive in being a very important part of this 66-book library. It's been used powerfully by God to shape the history of the church of Jesus Christ. It has been used to shape the church's understanding of the good news that's still of great joy for all people. A Savior has been born. The good news of great joy for all people, that Savior offered himself to everyone who would repent and embrace him by faith on Good Friday. The good news of great joy that on Easter morning he was raised from the dead, giving us the promise of eternal life. Notice how this book of Romans has shaped history. In the 5th century, there was a man who was given to indulge his flesh. He fathered a child out of wedlock and by his own admission was consumed with lust, driven by the powers of his flesh. One day he was in a yard proximate to a wall and he heard a little child say, take up and read. And for some odd reason that I still don't understand, he concluded that God was calling to him to read the Bible. So he picked up the Bible and he flopped open to a page and he looked down on the page and he read Romans 13, 13, and 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Hear the word of the Lord. When St. Augustine heard that word from the Lord, he wrote, reflecting upon that experience, at once, with the last words of that sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. Fast forward a thousand years to 1517. And a German Roman Catholic priest with a tormented soul. He had kept all the rules that he thought he was supposed to keep to become righteous. He had even gone to Rome and come up the steps as prescribed, kissing each step as he went on his way to be found righteous. And when he kissed the last step and stood up, he said, I was more conscious of my sin and my estrangement from God than at any time in my life before. Disgusted at what he heard, despairing of being estranged from God because of the guilt of his sin, he began to read the book of Romans. And he came to Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. And he read these words. For in it, that's the gospel, 
for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Hear the word of the Lord. He wrote, I grasp the truth that the righteousness of God is the righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. I felt myself reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. Fast forward 200 years to England and John Wesley on a cold winter night who in light of the inclement weather, went to a service he did not anticipate going. Walked in and sat down, and the preacher, of all things, was reading the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. What an odd thing for a preacher to do. How God powerfully, at times when it pleases him, uses odd things in a man's life. Because as Martin Luther listened to... As John Wesley listened to what Martin Luther said about what is revealed about the righteousness of God given to us in the gift of salvation, a righteous status that comes if we would but receive it apart from our behavior, but based upon the merits of Christ and his righteousness when Wesley heard the preacher read Luther talk about this in the preface to his commentary on the book of Romans, why he penned his famous sentence, of course, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and of death. Fast forward into the early years of last century, a German-Swiss theologian named Karl Barth had a dream of progress and utopia that was going to emerge through human progress and social change. Then World War I came and his dream collapsed. As he saw the depravity of man played out in the evil carnage of war. So in 1918, he published his commentaries on this great book of Romans. And he came to see that the kingdom of God was not a religious brand of socialism that was going to bring in a glorious utopia achieved by human prowess. But the kingdom of God was based on a radically new beginning that was initiated by God in Christ, the heart of the meaning of the gospel. F.F. F. Bruce, an English scholar from the last century, noting the powerful influence of the book of Romans, said this, there is no saying what may happen when people begin to study the book of Romans. End of quote. Why? I want to find out what may happen with you in our midst 
as we study this great epistle together. Now, lest you are familiar with the English preacher in London, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was actually Welsh, but he preached in London, uh, and his, was it 15 years he spent going through the book of Romans, we shall have a pace that is dissimilar to that. But we will look at this majestic book together, and let's start with the first seven verses. I want to read them to you this morning. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. I want to go two different directions in this introduction as we study these first seven verses. Number one, I want to answer the question, where did the church in Rome come from? He writes a letter to a group of people in the church of Jesus Christ in Rome. Where did it ever come from? Rome being the imperial capital of the then known world, the most strategic and powerful city. God had his people there on the ground, and Paul writes them a letter. Secondly, if we were to distill the message of the first seven verses, what is being said about, and here's a phrase I don't want you to forget, God's good news. God's good news. What is being said about God's good news? That's where we'll go next. There are three assertions that we need to draw from here. So first, how did we ever get the letter of Romans? Now, we need to be attentive, and the formal $6 phrase is canonical order. But all that means is, why is the very first letter that appears in the New Testament the book of Romans? Well, the New Testament starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. Luke wrote the third of the Gospels, and then Luke writes the story of Jesus with Matthew, Mark, and John. Then he writes the book of Acts, the story of Jesus' followers. This was a classic first century pattern of biography. You publish volume one, which is the story of the person you were writing the biography about, and then you use volume two, and that's the story of the people that the person in volume one influenced. So the value of the life and the influence of the life is followed in the people that they influence. So you have the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28, where does the book of Acts end? It ends in Rome with the Apostle Paul in Rome. The first of the letters in canonical order as God superintended the putting together of the library of the New Testament. Where does it start? forward, put right 
at the first stop in the first letter is this majestic description of the good news about Jesus Christ, the book of Romans. It's in a prominent place. Again, it's hard to overstate what the city of Rome meant to the ancient first century world in the Roman Empire. Uh, Stephen Neal wrote, She was the eternal city which had given them peace. Remember the Latin phrase Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, because they suppressed all dissent and there was peace everywhere. It allowed the Roman roads to be built. It allowed commerce to develop. For many years, it was the greatest empire in history. She was the eternal city which had given them peace, the fount of law, the center of civilization, the mecca of poets and orators and artists, while being at the same time a host to every kind of idolatrous worship. Into those dark streets shining God's good news came. Now this church in Rome had two its origin has two sources. Come with me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 10. On the day of Pentecost, Luke describes in Acts chapter 2 who was in Jerusalem at the time. And what's interesting is people from all over the world were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and they heard God's good news, in fact, in this phenomenon spoken in their own language. Acts chapter 2 in verse 9 Describes who's there? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. Now the last four words of 2.10 are really important to this study. And visitors from Rome. On the day of Pentecost, when the church is born, when at the ascension of Christ, at the procession of the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, the church is born among a group of people from Rome who were there. Now, when we get to Romans 10, we'll look at verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. They were there, they heard the Word of God, and you know what happened? The Word of God created faith brought by the Spirit to their hearts. And some of those people who, and from Rome, went home and took the gospel home with them and formed a church. Therein lies the birth of this church of Romans. When you get to Romans chapter 16, Paul greets a number of people that he knows in the Roman church. How did he know them? Well, you remember in the first century, the Christian network had to hang together and unite their hearts together and bear each other's burdens. That was a church on the run. There were a lot of persecution. So a lot of people knew a lot of people. And the Apostle Paul knew a lot of people. And he knew a lot of people in Rome. He greets this person. He greets this sister. He greets this brother. And on and on he goes for several verses in Romans 16. Paul knew them. The origins of the church in Rome stem from the day of Pentecost and the Spirit of God birthing and establishing the church in Rome through these people who heard the gospel. Now, the second clue to its origin is Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. I'll read one verse. Paul is giving a bit of his biography, and he's giving it to the Ephesian elders. He knows it's the last time he will see them, and he says this about himself in Acts 20, 24. 
But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. I wish we had an infinite amount of time, and I know you think that I think I have an infinite amount of time every time I get up to preach, but it'd be great to stop in that phrase. Isn't that, can you say that about yourself? Can I say that? I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul, what ministry did you receive from the Lord Jesus? Acts 20, 24, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, if ever man's life embodied somebody who'd been touched by the grace of God, it was Saul of Tarsus, now a follower of Jesus, the apostle Paul. Because he went from a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ, a man totally opposed to the gospel of God, a man who was there when Stephen is stoned willingly. He was a part of the, the cloakroom. You gave your coat to him so you could throw the rocks really hard, and he, he was fully into that. The killing of followers of Jesus, you get to Damascus Road, and his life is changed by the grace of God. Remember, he didn't get into the kingdom because he was the model Eagle Scout in keeping the law, even though he was a model Eagle Scout in keeping the law. In fact, he thought he was doing God a favor by persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. And so, Paul says, no, I, I, my life was touched by the grace of God. And from there on, his life was defined by telling other people about the grace of God. He became known as the go-to guy to explain the grace of God, hence the book of Romans. Now, we have the world's greatest six-year-old granddaughter who's as precocious as they come and doesn't miss anything and is always thinking, and, and she, doesn't mind, she calls me Paul, and she doesn't mind messing with me. Well, uh, once I dropped by Dairy Queen and uh, got a, a box of mint dilly bars rolled up to her house and, you know, presented them. Thereafter, she uh, desired that each time that I hit the house, I roll up with a box of mint deli bars, and we bust the caps on them and, you know, have a great time. Well, um, I've done it so much now that I have become for her the iconic person of delivery. When Paul rolls in, it's just characteristic and known that rolling in with Paul comes the mint deli bars from Dairy Queen. Far be it from Paul to forget or be in a hurry to not hit Dairy Queen before you hit the house. And she will give you an editorial full of all the reasons why you need to repent and go back to Dairy Queen and get the deli bars and come. I'll even try to secret them on my person and get in and like put them in the freezer and and I can't get anything by her. Uh, I, I, I thought I had her one day. And uh, she walked over, pulled out the freezer drawer. You know, she already knew what was in there. But I have become for her the iconic deliverer of mint deli bars from Dairy Queen. Now, who cares about deli bars? But I want you to know that Paul became the iconic person in the first century to deliver something. It's the gospel of the grace of God. In fact, his heart beat to do that. That was the purpose of his life. That's who he was. Now, Paul presents his resume in the first seven verses, and he presents the gospel's resume. 
Now, it was not uncommon in a letter you would write in the first century. In order to get a hearing to front load who the letter was from and explain why you had credibility and they ought to listen to you. So Paul's habit of putting this description of his own life in front is trying to earn a hearing for those who would be exposed to the message. And there's several things on his resume. Notice it with me. First, verse 1, he's a servant of Jesus Christ. The first thing he says about himself is not a lofty, aggrandizing, hey, I'm Reverend Dr. Mr. the Grand Potentate Pope. No, you know what he says is, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. The identity he took upon himself was, a, now remember the caste system in the first century and how people were looking? The slaves weren't the upper echelon elites. Uh, he wasn't a part of, and here's a fancy word that I learned with Andy last week in you know, colonial Williamsburg. He wasn't a part of the gentry. He was a part of the lowly. He said, look, all I am is a servant of Jesus Christ. He attached himself to Jesus as a humble servant. Uh, second thing he said about himself on his resume, he said, I'm called to be an apostle. I'm called, the word means called out from a group. Here he is wandering along with the rest of humanity, wandering away from the Lord, a stranger to the promises of God and the hope offered in his son Jesus. He's lost. He's what Paul describes dead in trespasses and in sin. And God calls his name, literally, on the Damascus Road. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he turns around. And he starts following Jesus Christ. He said, God called me away from that crowd headed to death. And he called me unto the life that's in Jesus Christ. But then he said, I'm called to be an apostle. Because no sooner had he left that crowd, been called to Christ, when he got sent back to that crowd to take this, not a deli bar message, but to take the message of the grace of God. And he's an apostle. That's one sent back into the crowd. That's us. We will be sent back into the crowd to carry this message. That's his resume. He said he was set apart. One appointed distinctively for a particular duty. To bring good news to others. That's Paul's resume. Now he gives us the gospel's resume. Did you note those phrases? He said, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. Don't miss that phrase. This gospel belongs to someone. Uh, Paul didn't say, I'll tell you what. Let me tell you about the apostle Paul. No, his message was not about himself. He wasn't carrying his message. He was carrying God's message. This is God's gospel. It belongs to him. Paul didn't make it up. He was a ventriloquist for God in offering this message. This was not a man-made message. This is God's message to the world. Now, we value that message based upon what we think of the person who sent the message. When I turned 30, Andy gave me a stack of letters she collected from my friends, and they were writing to me on my 30th birthday. It was great. Um, one of my friends... Um, uh, he, I think he sent me a letter on my 60th birthday. It was only 30 years late because he never did it when I was 30. He decided he'd make up. But um, one of the letters in that stack in, in, in the notebook 
was actually from a professional golfer who was at the top of his game at the time named Larry Nelson, a follower of Jesus. He was in a hole in Vietnam and asked a guy next to him, hey, what are you going to do when you get home? He says, I'm going to golf. He says, golf, I've never tried golf. So he bought Ben Hogan's, you know, five rules of the swing. And he's, you know, when he got out of Vietnam, he read the book, started, and he became this phenomenal golfer. He won the U.S. Open in 1983 at Oakmont, 1981 at the Atlanta Golf and Country Club. He won the PGA at 87 at Palm Gardens. He won the PGA. Over a five-year period, he won three major tournaments. And at the time, I was going to PGA tournaments, and I'd always follow him. He's a humble follower of Jesus. Whenever he'd win, they'd stick a mic under him. He'd have some soft word about Jesus. And I just always appreciated that. A humble, competent guy. had been through a lot. And along the way, because I followed him all the time, and he wasn't necessarily one of the favorite of the crowd, why I met his wife, who the piano player at the church where I served at the time, her son was a tennis pro at the Atlanta Golf and Country Club, so he was teaching her how to play tennis and her... Uh, daughter-in-laws and sons and everything. So we, we'd have, so I met her and talked to her a little bit. And then I met his dad and his mom at a tournament. Uh, but this little by proxy connection with a groupie follower, he didn't know me. He, Andy writes him, and he writes me this really nice note, sending me a birthday greeting. Now, that meant something to me because of what I thought of him. Now, actually, this is an ink blot for what you think of the gospel. There's a whole lot of people who couldn't give one wisp about the gospel. Do you know why? Because they don't think much of God. Because this is God's gospel. And if you know who it's from, and you have regard from where it came from, you'll have regard for the message. You will value it. It will mean something to you. If you don't care one wisp about God, the gospel can be nonsense to you. Who cares? This is God's gospel sent to us. Now, it doesn't come cluelessly out of outer space. I mean, the message of the gospel starts really early in the Bible, like Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, an offspring of this woman, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the curse oracle to the serpent. Someday there's going to be a match, you serpent of old, between one of Eve's children, a son, who's going to step on your head. Now, he's going to take a blow to the heel in the midst of it. But from Genesis 3.16, there's this promise that someday evil's going to meet its match and be suppressed and put down. And then you get to Abraham, who, through whom the whole world is going to know about God. Then you get to Jacob and his sons, and you get to Judah. The scepter's never going to come out of Judah. And the prophets begin to speak of the promise. And you get to David, 2 Samuel 7. One of your sons will forever sit on the throne. And it keeps going. You get to the New Testament and Jesus comes. And you look back and it's, it's, it's like the Odyssey. Remember when the arrow shot and it goes through all of the islets uh, in the pipe that shows up. Uh, it, it, everything lines up. The prophets of old spoke of this son and the promise coming, and it became more clear, and boom, 
There he is, Jesus Christ our Lord, born in the fullness of time. Notice, at the center of the gospel of God is Jesus Christ. It's not a message about a preacher. It's not a message about a hot church. It's not a message about anything other than singularly, God's good news is about Jesus Christ our Lord. According to Peter, all that we need for life and godliness. Isn't it amazing how the Bible fits together as a cohesive whole? And I'm telling you, the whole book is about, look at 1, 3, and 4. It is concerning his son. Martin Luther said, everything in Scripture is understood in relation to Christ. Verse 4, he's seen as David's son, the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, in these verses, Paul gives his resume... He gives, this is the, the, the figure who has the reputation of passing out this message of the grace of God. And he gives the resume of the gospel, the gospel of God concerning Jesus Christ. That's what's going on in the first seven verses. That's how the church was established in Rome. Now what ought our takeaway be of these first seven verses of this great letter? Good God's news to us is good. That's the broad takeaway. What would a condensed summary of the introduction be like? Let me make three assertions. Number one, God is good news to the world. This is God's good news. But before we get to his news, I want to assert this morning that God is good news to the world. Now, I want you to know that a large percentage of our world does not believe that. A growing majority in America does not believe that. But God is good news to our world. Francis Schaeffer, a Presbyterian missionary of a former generation, he wrote a book called He Is There. First of all, his first book was The God Who Is There. His next book was He Is There and He Is Not Silent. Our God speaks. He had a phrase that I love, and it would be this. He would say, there is someone at home in the universe. God is good news to the world. A world devoid of God is not a place that I want to be. God is at home in the universe that makes it a different place. You ever been in a big house, maybe as a guest, and found yourself to be the only person there? It feels odd. But when you know that the owner is there and your guest on his property, it feels different. And it is more receiving. God himself is good news to the world. The universe did not create itself. That doesn't make any logical sense. One of the things that gives our existence purpose is the fact that we have a creator who, according to the Bible, made us in his image and made us to relate to him. And that our highest joys and our good is reserved in knowing him through his good news message about his son, Jesus Christ. We can tell from creation that God is good and that he has provided for humanity all that we need. The world laughs at the notion of God, yet natural laws cannot unwind the depths 
of the mysteries of our existence. We don't need God. Science has figured everything out. Oh, really? Well, how about science explaining self-consciousness? Or how about science's explanation for consciousness itself? Wait a minute, I thought in science there was hope to understand everything. How come you can't explain that? What if the glorious mystery of our existence was tied up in our being made in the image of God and that our consciousness and self-consciousness was refracted from the consciousness of God? And in that mystery, we can understand ourselves and how we interact with reality and how we understand it. What if there is a God who made us? What if we were made to relate to him? What if our highest joys are held out in our response to him? Yes, life does have a purpose. There is someone at home in the universe. There is meaning to life. It is not empty. It means something to exist and steward the gift of life before a holy God. I don't want to live in a world without God. We are trying to do that in America. Very hard are we working at that project. Dear ones, it is not going very well. Our culture is broken. God is good news to the world. Now it gets better. Secondly, the second assertion is God has good news for the world. God not only is good news to the world, God has good news for the world. We need God's news. We need a Savior. All sin and our own indulgence has done has brought us to guilt and death. And Jesus brings all who will come with him to resurrection and life. I have come that you might Have life, he said, that you might really live. Some of us need to go to the mirror and ask ourselves, are we really living? Walking around in our spirits like zombies when all along God has called us to the joy of humbly acknowledging who we really are before a holy God, and that is a sinful, weak person in need of grace. But God's good news has at its center the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And in knowing him, we come to be forgiven. In knowing him, we come to have life. God has good news for the world. I love verse 7. Notice it with me. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, do you know you are loved by God this morning? That's life-altering knowledge. And called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The week I was studying for this, which was the week before I went on vacation, uh, I went to bed with a troubled heart, just concerned. I'm going to really enjoy heaven when everything is perfect and everything goes well. And Murphy's laws are totally gone and buried in hell, you know, where... And I was burdened for several families and just had a mind and a heart full of stuff and laid down. Okay, now I'll go to sleep. Yeah, right. And that didn't work. And I was laying there. And I was, you know, and once you pray and once you go over the verses you've memorized, and, you know, the older you get, the shorter that time is, you know. But uh, 
And so where do you go? I started pondering Romans 1, 1 through 7. I'd been studying the whole day. And I got to verse 7. Grace and peace to you. Oh, I felt, Lord, what I get in your good news is grace and peace. Right now, as I lie here, what I need is what I get in Jesus, grace and peace. Grace, unmerited favor, undeserving favor. The acrostic, you've heard it, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what I get from God, grace and peace. That state of being unmolested by the brokenness of our world. Rest in my circumstances, a harmonious relating to God in my life and the circumstances of my grace and peace. You say, Eric, what's the big deal about God's good news? Well, I'll tell you what, you get in volumes grace and peace in Jesus Christ. I was around a troubled man one day, and uh, I knew he had tried through the years to lean on mental health pharmaceuticals, and there's, there's one kind of, well, when a smart guy like Doug Duty could tell us what it all did, but it, it has the name of Ativan. It's kind of a relaxant, uh, settles down your nervous system when you get all hyped up, and I was trying to encourage him, and, and uh, he likes to mess around, and so I was buying that. I said, dude, is there anything I can do for you? And he looked up at me, and he said, yeah, there is. I go, whatever it is, I'll get it. He said, can you get me an Ativan about as big as a bar of soap? That's what I need right now. I'll tell you what's better than that. Is at the heart of the gospel, there is meted out an incredible proportion. Above and beyond of what we could ask or think. Grace and peace. You need that this morning. It's available in Jesus Christ. God's good news. And so I ask you, do you have peace with God? Therefore, being justified by faith, being declared righteous by faith, being made right with God by simply believing, by relying upon Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that is? I want you to know. And God wants you to know. It's at the heart of God's good news that he sent Jesus to give you grace and peace. See, Eric, how do you get it? It, It's it's simple. You acknowledge your need for it. And you confess that you don't have it. And that you don't have the right stuff to do life without him. And then you invite Jesus Christ into your life and come to experience, here it is, grace and peace. I urge you to come to Jesus Christ this morning if you are apart from him. What a joy it would be to be with you today to lead you into a relationship with Christ. If it's convenient for you, by appointment during the week, our staff's email published in the bulletin every week. Finally, the third assertion is this. God's good news transforms those who are called in the world Look at verses 5, 6, and 7. In verse 5, there is an arresting phrase that has a punch. He calls it, God's given me this great job to go to the Gentiles with this gracious message from God, his good news, and call them to, here it is, the obedience of faith. 
huh, the obedience of faith. Paul hosts a wedding in verse 5. It's a wedding between faith and obedience, and they're joined at the hip. For Paul, you don't respond to the gospel unless you obey the gospel. In that sense, the gospel's not, well, Eric, I've heard the gospel. I don't buy it. I'm not doing, you know, I, I, I don't believe it. The gospel is not only something to believe, a content to believe. Jesus Christ died on the cross for his sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scripture. It's not only a content of facts to believe. It's a summons to obey. If you said, oh, I've just disregarded the gospel, what you have done is you have disobeyed the gospel that is calling you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The obedience of faith. Don't tell me you believe, Paul would say, unless you obey. In that sense, the old gospel hymn had it right. They must have sung that at that wedding Paul had for uh, faith and obedience, uh, trust and obey. Because in obeying, we model the fact that we are trusting and that we are obeying the gospel, the obedience of faith. Is that how we explain faith here? Oh, yeah, Eric, I believe. I believe. Well, you believe what? And does that belief shape your will? Knowing Jesus is not a get-out-of-hell-free card that we put in the back of our pocket and live however we want. According to 1.5, knowing Jesus is the submission of, of the glad submission, the loving submission of our will to this one who loved us and gave himself for us, the obedience of faith. Can it be said of you that you believe? You say, Eric, well, how can I model believing? You obey. Because for Paul, to believe was to obey. And the absence of obedience, notwithstanding the profession of faith, would leave Paul shaking his head saying, I don't care what you're saying that you believe. Because in our obedience, we demonstrate that we have come to place our faith in Jesus Christ. John Murray said the faith which the apostleship was intended to promote was not an evanescent act of emotion, but the commitment of wholehearted devotion to Christ and the truth of the gospel. A true living faith in Jesus includes within itself an element of submission, John Stott said. The gospel is something to, be, to obey. The question before us today is, are we at Calvary obeying the gospel? Those two go together. Believe and obey. Real faith has integrity that shows up in obedience and is not easily dismissed and it packs a punch of influence. That's what we want to grow here at Calvary Baptist Church. Our world is full of competing messages that are inauthentic. Calls to buy this, calls to do this, and then we'll experience the latest and the greatest it's interesting how the United States Treasury trains counterfeit money agents. In the school that you go to to prepare to be an agent, what you do is you stare at authentic 
bills in circulation and you become a student of their idiosyncrasies. You know their watermarks. You know their print. You know their font. You know the color. You know the texture of the paper. And you so study the original that as soon as you, your eyes see the counterfeit, you can recognize it right away. Not by studying the counterfeit, but by knowing the authentic so thoroughly, thoroughly that the counterfeit is easily distinguishable. I want you to know that a lot that passes for the gospel of God has nothing to do with what the Apostle Paul discusses in the book of Romans. Some people are not in good shape to recognize the inauthentic. But for us, in these weeks that lie ahead, what we shall do is gloriously walk through the majesty of the book of Romans and see the authentic for what it is and own it and obey it and be prepared to live in our day full of gospels of spurious nature. May God use this powerfully in our midst in these days that are ahead. I'm looking forward to it. I want you to as well, both in prayer and in expectancy as we meet. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Romans. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is sharp and powerful and quick, able to separate the indivisible and bring life where there is death and bring healing, bring encouragement. What the Apostle Paul would write in Romans 15, 4, the encouragement of the scriptures. Lord, we look forward to this journey through the book of Romans. Grant that we would not only see the gospel, God's gospel with clarity, we would be obeying it joyfully and be maturing, groomed for a life, joyful obedience to you. Oh, Lord, we feel our weakness and are drawn to your strength. I want to stand on top of this gift of the righteousness of Jesus and be found whole and at peace with you. Now work in our midst, Lord. We love you. As we sing of the gospel, just knead it like a loaf with yeast into our hearts afresh this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.